Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Uh, a little while ago, my family and I went on a family trip together, and I call it a family trip, not a vacation, because I have small kids. And you guys know if you've traveled, especially if there's an airport involved, you know that a vacation makes it sound like it's easy and relaxing. And it is, it's not. It's parenting in a different location is what it is. And it's great. I'm not complaining. But it's a trip and it's not a vacation. This particular family trip had us going through an airport. And um, if you didn't know this about me, it's, it's about time we have, this, we have this heart-to-heart. I've got a fear, a phobia, you might call it, uh, as it relates to airport and airline travel. Um, Getting in a metal tube and flying 30,000 feet in the air with a bunch of strangers at 700 miles an hour, I have absolutely no problem with whatsoever. I think it's fun. I think it's cool. You know, you see stuff down below. You like look for the Rocky Mountains. You look for, you know, Mississippi River, landmarks. I love it. The fear, the phobia that I have as it relates to airports is what happens if I get hungry in the airport? Because it's the most expensive place in the universe to buy food, isn't it? Right? And so I'm the guy, and you have to know that my wife and I have a difference here, and, th- and that's okay. Jesus is still working on her. But we have, <laughs> we have this difference because I'm the guy who goes to the airport, and I'll have a carry-on, a backpack, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that on the last family trip, I brought a dozen frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in my backpack. Because if anybody's going to get hungry in that airport, we're not buying food. I've got a dozen Sammies on me at any moment. And he's just, here you go. You got it. And my wife, she doesn't walk through an airport. She glides through an airport. Because it's easy, it's breezy, it's light. Because she knows that there's an abundance of Cinnabons and Starbucks that would be happy to sell her a bagel for roughly the cost of a down payment on a starter home. No, no problem. And so we're, we have this difference. And so... You know, together, we, we got to find out, you know, marriage is about sacrifice, not compromise. So the sacrifice that we came uh, to together is we're going to do some sandwiches, and that's her sacrifice, and then we're not, gonna, we're not doing Cinnabon, we're not doing Starbucks. I cannot afford that, right? Nobody, nobody in the right mind can afford that. We, we found, like, the healthy snacks at the airport vending machine, which are incredible machines. They're not like normal vending machines. Uh, she tells me in the lobby, in her workplace, they, they put in a, a nice new vending machine. It's got Apple Pay. So she's like, I just, I don't know how it charges me, Dirk. I just, I walked by and the Flaming Hot Cheetos just came out. <laughs> it's bad stewardship not to eat them, right? But uh, the airport vending machine is a, is, a unique, uh, is a unique machine because it has everything in the world inside of it. If, if you want, you can press A2, scan your Apple Pay, and it'll give you a new phone. Like, just... It's there. If you push B12, a bag of carrots or broccoli can come out of this thing. It's incredible, right? It's not just beverages. It's not just snacks. It's yes to everything. It's yes to electronics. It's yes to those weird little like neck pillow things that everybody has except for you on the airport. It's yes to every. You could even get, and as we did, we, you could even get a $12 sandwich that will dispense out of the bottom. It's still cheaper than the Fort Lauderdale Margaritaville Express. It's... <laughs> But it's got everything. In, in a, a vending machine like that, or really any vending machine that you can think of, it's easy, isn't it, to, to start to want like everything in our life to start to sort of act a lot like that vending machine because it's so convenient. They're everywhere that you want them to be. It's so easy. You know how to work and you just push the button of the item that you want to come out of the tray. It's, it's so reliable. That when you push the buttons, when you add the right amount of coins or, or have the right, pay the right amount of money, you know what's going to come out of 
the bottom. And so it's easy for us to relate to pretty much everything else in our life like we do a vending machine. It's even easy to start treating God a little bit like that airport vending machine. Everything in the universe could be ours. We just have to know the right combination of buttons to press and we have to know the right amount of coins to insert into the machine to get the treat that we want. And so we're going to build on that idea this morning and maybe replace it with a better image of God. But, but the idea here is the series that we're in is called Your God is Too Small. And every time I just make this disclaimer, especially for those of you who are new, it's not that God is too small. Jesus, as he reveals the heart of our Heavenly Father in person form in the gospel, that God is far from too small. But the God that we have shrunk him down into in the box that we have put him into, that God, your God, my God at times, is far too small. Small, And so we're, we're kind of comparing and contrasting these ideas throughout the series. Last week, we talked about God as, as the cop around the corner waiting to write you a speeding ticket. And we said, no, no, no. God isn't like the cop around the corner just waiting for a, for a ticket. God is like that father in Luke chapter 15 who doesn't walk but runs to his son. The father who sacrifices so profoundly deep for his son and daughter, you and me. That's who God is is like. We're expanding our idea of God. And this morning we pick it up and we're talking about this idea of God as a vending machine kind of God. And, and we're tempted to want to believe it's true. I think that's what makes it partly so insidious because of how great it would be. I mean, just imagine if we could like wake up in the morning and before we even get out of bed, if we could just say like five minutes of prayer, three to five minutes of prayer. Let's, let's round down a little. And it's like, if I did that, I knew I was going to have a good day. If not a good whole day, at least I could have just a good hair day. Like, whatever the thing is. And if, and if I knew, like, that was the combination. If I knew the amount of coins to add into the vending machine God, then I could get the score that I wanted on the ACT, on the SAT, college entrance thing. And we could just do the right combination, add the right coins, that if we could serve enough volunteer hours, maybe in the right type of place, then I could finally get some relief from my allergies, right? Or I could finally get the medical diagnosis that I'm looking for that kind of explains some of the symptoms or the ailments that I have. Why aren't you like that, God? Especially if you could be. It would be so easy. It would be so convenient. He would be so reliable. And I think that's the thing that bothers me about it the most is that we read in the scripture all throughout that God is unchanging, the exact same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But my experience of God is that he's fickle and he'll bless some and not others. Why them and not me? My experience of God is like that vending machine that doesn't always work all the time, that you, you press A12 and you're waiting for your treat to come down. And, the, and the, little, the little metal rings start to spin and you're like, here it comes, all right? My Cheetos are just about to come through this slot. And then the rings are spinning and it's coming forward and then the rings stop spinning and the, and the Cheetos just kind of hang. And they taunt you. They taunt me. And if you're like me, that's when you start to get a little violent, not all the way, not all of a sudden. You got to do it kind of quietly and chill. You got to kind of just like bump the machine a little, you know, you don't, and you just bump it harder, maybe just hit on the glass once or twice, and then just shake it until airport security comes around and says, sir, is there a problem? Yes, there is a problem. This machine, a lot like my God, is fickle and unreliable. Don't use that line in airport. That's not going to help your cause. Absolutely, Whatever. So we're going to replace that image of the vending machine God. Because some of you have recognized that the vending machine God is fickle and unreliable. And you've given up. Like any vending machine that's unreliable. 
You walk away. And you tell your friend who's hungry, I tried it. Didn't work for me. I recommend trying something else. If you are in a place of having walked away from the vending machine, God, or if you are in a place of seriously questioning whether you should walk away from that God, good. You should. Because that God is far too small. He's worth walking away from because he doesn't actually exist. We're going to contrast the idea of a vending machine God with something a little bit more biblical. Um, our story this morning is going to kind of come to us from Jeremiah chapter 18. And a little bit about Jeremiah before we get into it. He's, uh, he's, he's often called the weeping prophet. He lived, a, he lived in catastrophically hard times. He's a, a prophet. It's in the Old Testament, the southern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Judah. He lives in a time when he is he's called, he's set apart from birth to go into ministry, and he is tasked with giving a difficult word to the people of God for their whole life. In fact, his, uh, his ministry ends and his life ends at the Babylonian takeover of Jerusalem and Judea. When they capture the city, they, they ransack it. They take anything that's good or valuable. They burn the temple to the ground, and that's Jeremiah's story. That's Jeremiah's task. We understand why he's called the weeping prophet. In the middle of all of it, uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, the words are on the screen here, um, we have these words. And God calls, uh, comes to Jeremiah, and I don't know if this is supposed to be like a word of encouragement, admonishment, but it's in the Bible, and we're going to read it. Uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and I just want us to imagine like he's coming to each one of us too. The word of the Lord uh, came to Jeremiah from the Lord, uh, go down to the potter's house, or maybe like a potter's shed, wherever he's working, probably with a door open to the outside, and there I'll give you my message. This is the message. I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him, the, the potter, he, he's working at a wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. It had some kind of a defect that we're not told what it is, but it was marred in his hands. And maybe Jeremiah doesn't know what it was, but the, the potter, the, the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter uh, folded it, and he forms it into another pot, uh, shaping it as seemed best to him. Uh, but before we jump into the kind of the metaphor that I think God has uh, for Jeremiah, I think he goes down to the potter's house, and we get like two verses, uh, and w we see in a very quick amount of time an entire pot getting made. They weren't that quick. Uh, it was not an assembly line process that took place. It was a form of art, and each piece was unique and set apart from the last one. What I'd like to do uh, with us as a community is imagine you're Jeremiah and you're walking in his shoes and it's the time of Jerusalem ahead of the fall to the Babylonians. You have lived a difficult life. And God calls you down for this special medicine, uh, message and you go to the, the potter's shed. And let's just pretend for just a moment that you watch the potter work over time. Um, we imagine a potter at work with a wheel uh, spinning and it's, it's delicate and it's sensitive. It's like an art. That's not the first part of the process. 
Uh, you guys remember middle school? Some of you have repressed it, and I understand that. That's absolutely natural. Uh, pinch pots, right? Uh, you, you'd get the clay, and you'd start to kind of pinch the sides to start to create a, a little bowl, possibly more artistic than, than this one is. You know the first step in the pinch process before you do this? You've got to get the air bubbles out. Because this, this thing, this uh, clay dug up from the, from the ground, well, this clay was ordered on Amazon. The potter didn't have that uh, <laughs> capacity available to him. The, the clay dug up from the ground, if you, wet, if you put it in the kiln at 2,000 degrees with an air pocket, hot air ready to expand, what happens to it? Kabloom, I think is the scientific word for it to describe it. And so, you know, what, we're, what we did as kids is to try to like squeeze and press it in to try to get some of those, uh, some of those air bubbles out. Otherwise, it would, it would expand, it would blow up, um, it, and your pinch pot would also take out like shrapnel flying all the other little kids' pinch pots in the kiln. And you had to explain to the teacher whether or not it was maliciousness or incompetence that caused you to destroy the classroom's artwork. I'm still processing some things. <laughs> I didn't have a, have a great artistic experience as a, as a kid or an adult. But the, um, the potter that Jeremiah was watching, uh, he wouldn't just watch somebody need. What this potter would do is to go outside and smash it on the ground. And then he'd look at it again and again. Pinching it was one way to go. But what I think the potter liked to do is just to smash it on the ground again. I have no idea how long he would do this, but... We can assume it's for a good amount of time. I wonder if Jeremiah thought that was the image he was ready to receive. This is a guy who lived a remarkably difficult life. God set him apart from birth and said, you're going to be the one to to share this message of lament with my people. That it's not going to get better. You will not see any results from the ministry that you have. Why am I even doing it then? The collective answer is God just saying, you know what? Because when the Babylonians finally do come in and when they destroy, utterly destroy the city, ransack it and take your friends and family members away, I simply want people to understand why it happened. Because of how absolutely corrupt you are. Because you've absolutely turned your back on me. Because you've stopped caring for the widow, for the orphan, for the alien within your gates. And God is saying, I will do whatever it takes to get that air bubble out once and for all. Because if it stays there and if we put you in the kiln, listen, that shrapnel is going to hurt. And you're not going to be the only one that's going to get hurt by it. Jeremiah lived in a time, uh, he had no results that he saw. He had no friends outside of a a close administrative assistant named Baruch. He had no family because God told him, you don't want a family in the remarkably difficult setting in which you're going to live and do ministry. I wouldn't inflict that upon you or them. The closest thing that he had to a friend was probably a nemesis named Pasher. He, uh, he worked at uh, temple security. He was a, was a police officer. He had one time this uh, sparring so often with Jeremiah. One time he threw him into a cistern, like this underground water reservoir. It was mostly dried up at the time, except Jeremiah sank up to, up to his chest in that clay. And he calls out to God, why? 
why would you do this to me? And it's easy to think that God has forgotten about you, isn't it? It's easy to believe that God is the bully beating you up. I want to suggest that he's also possibly and literally beating the hell out of you. There's things in our hearts that don't belong. And God is saying, because I love you so incredibly much, I'm not going to allow this solidifying and firing process to take place while you're still harboring that inside. That's just one of the the processes that Jeremiah saw. He may have also witnessed the time when the... uh, when the potter sees a little bit that's dried up and he, and he kind of tosses it to the side and Jeremiah may have wondered, is that me? Am I the one? Am, am I being tossed to the side and forgotten about? R- remember that a, that a good potter would leave nothing wasted. He would set a dried up piece off to the side not because it wasn't able to be molded, shaped, because it was unpliable, because it wasn't able to be molded or shaped yet. Set it off to the side, maybe put a damp towel over top of it, maybe put it in water. Give it time. The water sinks in and does its work. You've seen a baptism. You've seen the water do its work. And what do we always say at baptisms? Extra credit if you remember. (laughs) It's not about the water. It's what the water points to. As the water gets in there and does its work, As the gospel soaks into our hearts, it makes us pliable, it makes us moldable. Oftentimes, though, it just takes time. Time at work is not a time out. We'd be wise to remember that. He's getting the air out, there's nothing wasted. The potter would put the whole thing on a wheel, and it would just kind of turn around. Can you imagine if, if the jar was a little off to the side? Even at a slow speed, it would not take much to make the, to make the jar go flying off in the potter's wheel. It, it should be centered. And I'm reminded of our, our saying around here, we keep Jesus at the center. The temptation of going off-center, as an observation, is, is that Jesus is both our Lord and Savior. And, and we hear those terms sometimes and we don't ultimately, we don't often reflect on the depth of what they mean. Uh, because it's easy to cheapen Jesus into a Savior forgetting his Lordship. Like, Jesus came to forgive us from our sins. Uh, Jesus came to bail us out of heaven and get us into, he- bail us out of hell and get us into heaven. He is Savior. And I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to take that away from us one, one bit. But, but one part that we forget is, is that he is also Lord. He is also in charge of, of how we live and has words to say about that. In fact, Jesus came in the Gospels. And yes, he came to show us a little bit about how to die as our Savior, but also about how to live and how to live life to the fullest. We keep Jesus um, at the center. We recognize and reflect that this is a slow and arduous process, that the potter is slow and steady progress towards a particular end goal that he has in mind. I can't prove it, but I just think this is the reason why there are absolutely so many agriculture metaphors in the Bible. 
It's because God knew this moment that we would be in when we want everything instantaneous and right now. And he's going, you know what? You harvest rarely, if ever, in the same season that you plant. Growth. And if you're a pot being shaped into something, transformation takes time. And the final encouragement that I just want to leave Jeremiah and and you all is that Trust the potter. Trust him. Towards the end of the experience, as the clay is, is, is wet and it's dripping, it's moldable, it's pliable. You know, you, you, could, take, you could take a pinky and radically change the, the shape of the object that you're making. It's, it's that pliable. We contrast that with the beginning picture of slamming it on the ground. And you couldn't think of two more different ways of shaping a person. And if I could uh, be bold enough to ask, to, to share a bit of wisdom. Yield early. Yield early. How much more delightful it would be to be able to shape informed by God and to so readily respond to him with just the gentle touch of his pinky finger than having to be slammed on the ground again and again to get those pesky air bubbles out to prevent you from blowing up and blowing up everybody else around you. Yield early. God continuously comes back to this picture again and again. Jesus picked it up, not with a potter this time, but he goes, it's agriculture, it's like growing things. And you clip a little bit from the tree, you'd prune a little bit from the tree so that that spot would yield, same word, so much more fruit. It's painful in the process, but listen, just yield early. And you'll see the results, you'll see the, the fruit. But the point of it is for Jeremiah and watching this isn't about the entire process. We don't get a lot of that. But we do see that the potter is shaping and forming something. And then he, he sees that it's marred, it's defected in some way. And we don't see what that is. But, but he folds it in and he, and he recasts something entirely new out of it. And for some of you who have been running away from God for your whole lives... I want you simply to be reminded that you cannot outrun the love of God running after you. You cannot out-sin the grace of God in your life. There's nothing wasted. Should you at any point in your life turn around, turn around, if at any point in your life, if you repent, he'll remake you. It's the hope of the gospel. It's what he's doing with the nation of Israel. He's going, I want you to know I'm just about to fold it in and to reshape and reform. But you're never but one step of turning around to come back home. And as we heard last week, you have a father running after you. And today he's a potter and he's shaping you and he's forming you. We get those final words in verse five and six as he finishes it off. Then the word of the Lord came to me and he said, Can I not do with you, Israel, or church, as the potter does? Declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. I'm not a vending machine in the sky that's easy, convenient, and reliable. I'm so 
much better than that. I'm like the potter who holds you, church, in the palm of my hand. I'm not transactional like a vending machine is. I'm relational. I'm not one directional. Listen, I work with the clay to shape and form into something. I'm not instantaneous. That's maybe the biggest one. Growth, change, transformation is a process that takes time. If I'm going to get a little bit more real with like the thing that prevents us from seeing God, I think, as, as he really is. Um, the thing that prevents us from moving this morning, moving, moving this morning away from the vending machine, God, into the, the potter, the masterful potter kind of God. The thing that stands in the way is, is a move in culture that, that just tries to describe our worth and, and the value that we have. See, more and more all the time, I think the value that we have is determined not by the quality, but the quantity of, of likes that we get, of the accolades that we receive. And we can't see God as this masterful potter that takes an incredible amount of time, and sometimes it feels like he's beating the hell out of us, because he is. And we don't see the results right away. And we want that. Like, I, I don't want you to have to, like, show your hands or anything, but I think we've all done it. Where you post something online, and you're like, I don't know, I think this is, like, a cool kind of thing. And you post, and then it doesn't, like, immediately get all of these likes. And you're like, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe it's corny. Maybe it's cheesy. Maybe, maybe not. And so you, like, you, you take it down. Because we have this messaging that we've received that the, the quality of our art or the quality of our life is determined by the quantity of likes, And to contrast that picture a little bit, there's the Vincent Van Gogh Museum uh, exhibit piece, the immersion experience. Tickets were like $60. And like what I told you about myself and the airport sandwiches, you know I didn't go to the thing, right? I'm way too cheap for any of that. Uh, but it was around, and I'm, and I'm mindful of it right now. And it's uh, Vincent Van Gogh is a, a Dutch artist. I mean, he has exhibits now all over the world, just a hugely well-known artist. Uh, one of his most recent paintings that were sold, it was like 30 years ago, but it was sold for $150 million. The other pieces aren't sold because they're universally accepted as priceless, and you would never let a piece from Vincent van Gogh get out of your hands. It wasn't always that way. Uh, Van Gogh, when he was alive and when he was doing his painting, he had almost no financial resources. He sold a grand total of one painting in his life. He bartered a lot of them away for things like food or medicine, rent to pay, but he had a sales receipt for a grand total of one painting that he sold. Uh, there's so many uh, self-portraits of Vincent van Gogh because he couldn't afford to pay someone to sit for him so that he could paint them. That's why he painted himself so often. And yet, his works are priceless. Now, could you imagine right now, if he settled, if he settled for this picture that the quality of his work is determined by the quantities of likes that he got in his lifetime, if he didn't see that instantaneous result, and if he quit painting, the, the gap in the art world, the hole that we would have, because he believed that lie, that what he was doing wasn't valuable because it took time. 
that even in his lifetime, he didn't get to see it, like Jeremiah didn't get to see the results of his work in his lifetime. Now, what makes a piece valuable? You guys, this is probably the most important thing I say all day. What makes a piece valuable? It isn't the clay or even the marring. You could do a lot with that. What makes a piece valuable is the hands of the person that it's in. As you go out into the week, you're going to hear all of this messaging. You're going to hear that you're behind in life. You're going to hear that because your family doesn't look or act a certain way, that you're somehow less. You're going to go out into the week and not having discovered your purpose for it all. You're going to see other people chasing out ahead of you and and wish that you could be in that place or at least hope to be in that place someday. I want you to be reminded that what makes you valuable are the hands of whom you're in. Ephesians, for he has, for we are his workmanship. We are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. You are in the hands not of a vending machine, of a masterful potter. He's at work. I'm going to invite you to stand up and let's keep on praising and let's sing on singing to that masterful artist that we serve. Uh, God, you are up to something beautiful. And we don't know what it is. God, because even the beautiful works of art begin with the sound of clay smashing into the cement. Some of us are in that place where we feel it. Like a two by four upside the head, we feel it, God. Help us to yield. Give us a soft enough heart to yield. Uh, others of us, Lord, are responding to your gentle touch. Give us the courage to keep on responding, uh, to not give up. Some of us, Lord, are a finished piece of work, at least we think so. And you love us enough not to leave us in that place so you're just about to fold us in and God give us grace in those moments to stay close to you even when it feels like we're beginning all over again God help us to yield to you the great artist Amen